All right, y'all, continuing this morning in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. You can turn there now. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 16. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In context, Jesus has been telling us what his people are in the Beatitudes. They are blessed. They are to be like him, and he is these things that we've talked about in the Beatitudes so far. And because his people are like him, and he is different than the world, we are to be different than the world. And the world is likely uh, not going to tolerate us so easily. And we talked about that too with persecution last week, didn't we? But we are good for the world. Remember that sermon from two weeks ago, perhaps, about how righteousness, is, righteousness and mercy is God's gift to you, and you are God's gift to the world? You are good for the world, because Jesus is good for the world, and you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where's Jesus take us now? What's he, what's he tell us next here? Keep your salt salty and your light visible. This is... This is where Jesus really starts challenging his people, y'all, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where, this is where it really gets, gets going. This is beginning to gain some momentum, having a little, little force to it. You want to follow me? He says, be like me. Be like me. And we said before, Jesus gets to say that, right? He gets to say, be like me. And that's why he saved us, so that we would be like him. You know, he, to reflect the character of God in the world that he came to redeem. He didn't just save you to, to keep you out of hell. He didn't just save you so that you could have sort of this private faith, just this me and Jesus sort of relationship. He saved you and took you out of the world and made you different from the world so that your life of renewal in him would make a difference in the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. You know you're different because you're a Christian. You know you're different because you're a Christian. The sermon this morning is titled Being Christian. Being Christian means being different. And that difference makes a difference. Your difference from the world makes a difference in the world. And that's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Your difference from the world makes a difference in the world. And we'll look at two points, the utility of salt and the nature of light. One thing I want to point out right away is both salt and light are necessary in order to sustain life. But we'll look at the utility of salt. It's only useful when it's pure. Salt is only useful when it's pure and when it hasn't been corrupted by its environment. 
and we'll look at the nature of light. Its essential quality is its essence. Light is its feature. You take away one characteristic of light, and it's not light. It's darkness. So again, we're talking about being Christian. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And being Christian means being different. And why are we called to be different? Because your difference from the world makes a difference in the world. Salt and light stand out. Their their natural properties just make them stand out. Salt affects things not by doing anything, but by just being what it is. By its very nature, just by being what it is. Light affects everything around it simply by being what it is. They affect their environment, salt and life, and they sustain life in their environment simply by being what they are. You have to be different from your environment in order to affect your environment. Let me read you this quote from from John Stott, famous pastor and theologian that passed away probably, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, but um, listen carefully to this. He says, if the house is dark at night, there's no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question is, where's the light? If the meat goes bad, there's no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when the bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or a stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Without gospel influence in the world, the world rots. It decays. Salt, that thing Jesus says you are, preserves it. It keeps it from rotting. Salt does a lot of things, actually. Let's, let's look at the utility of salt, okay? You know, Jesus always does this, right? He always grabs things that are, that are familiar to his audience, and he, he brings them in, he pulls them in, and he uses them as illustrations and examples in order to make his point. He's, he's always taking what people understand about the things around them to teach them about the one who's standing right in front of them, himself, about himself and what his kingdom is like. He takes things that they understand in order to teach them about things they don't yet understand. So if we're going to learn our lesson from our great teacher... Let's understand the metaphor that he's using, right? What's, this, what's up with this salt thing? I'd caution you to not, not, don't stop at the salt as a seasoning thing. Don't stop at the salt as a seasoning thing. Because sometimes I think this, this verse gets used to mean, what we do as Christians is we make things taste good. We, we're, we're supposed to be tasty and attractive to the world. Stop that noise. (laughs) It's not your job to make Jesus tasty to the world on its own terms. Stop believing that. That's like catering to the fussy child at the dinner table playing with his peas. It's not your job to figure out how you can make Jesus go down a little easier. Christians are called to be different, and our differences, oftentimes, y'all, are annoying and frustrating to the world. 
But what they, what they find about us or should find about us is that sometimes when, when nobody else is willing to tell the truth, you will, even if it costs you dearly. When everybody else is milking the clock at work and you're still working hard as unto the Lord, that's different. That, that stands out. Now, maybe they don't admire that on the surface, right? Maybe, maybe what they do is they call it prudish, but whatever they call it, they see it's different. That's the kind of seasoning you are, unmistakably salty. You're a salt, not sugar. You're not here to sweeten things up. You're not here to make Christ more palatable. You are here to show what he's like. And that salt is going to make some people thirsty for him. Praise God, some people are going to come running and say, where can I get some of that living water? Other people are going to say, crucify him. Here's the thing to remember about salt as a seasoning. It is a seasoning. It's one of the uses, right? It's one of the uses of salt. But here's what to remember about salt as a seasoning. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It draws attention to something else. The same is true of light, right? It doesn't draw attention to itself. It shines on what is to be seen. Salt brings out flavor. And so as far as salt as a seasoning goes, you don't make Christ taste better to the world. You bring out the flavor of Christ. Now look, some people don't like broccoli. And you just bringing more of the flavor out of broccoli is only going to intensify their dislike of it. Now you can smother it with cheese. You can smother it with cheese or something else so that the fussy child eats it, but that's not salt. Salt brings out the flavor of what's already there, and what is already there is enough. Christ and him crucified for the sins of man is enough. Some people won't like the way it tastes. Okay, but let's not stop at taste and seasoning, okay? What did Jesus' disciples think about when he uses this illustration? What did they think about when they, when they heard about salt? What did they know about it? What was being communicated to them in that moment, and thereby communicated to us now, today, as his disciples today. We know today that salt does a lot of things. It removes rust, it, it, uh, it puts out grease fires, it has healing properties, and some of that may have dawned on them too, then. But they had other day-to-day -day uses of salt that might be kind of foreign to us. Uh, so, so let's look at this. Let's look at um, this verse's parallel in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Similar to what he's saying here. Then he says, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's supposed to be good for the soil and for the manure pile. A key source of salt at this time would have been the Dead Sea, right? And so when they scraped up and, and, and mined whatever salt was there, that wasn't like our refined iodized table salt with the little girl in the umbrella and it's raining salt on her, right? This was like a full-spectrum salt. And, and, and one, of the, one of the bits, one of the components that was there was something that we now call potash, 
that is used for fertilizer. It's interesting that we're the salt of the earth, and one of salt's uses is to benefit the soil itself. But what's more interesting is why. Fertilizer makes good things grow. That's what you do, salt of the earth. You make good things grow in the earth. Salt is apparently also good for the manure pile. You know, little gross here for a minute, but just real life for them back then. They didn't have toilets, right? Didn't have plumbing. And go and poop in your backyard, and then you would cover it with salt that would have been in, a, in, in some kind of sealed container there. It was a disinfectant to stop the spread of disease. So we have Jesus telling us, telling his disciples then, and telling us now that we are something that helps good things grow and stops bad things from growing. Christians are supposed to be like that. Promote the growth of good things in the world and prevent the growth of bad things in the world. You are meant to be a difference because you are meant to make a difference. We grow good things and we stop bad things from growing. That's what salt does. It promotes the growth of decency and morality and gospel influence in the world. The honoring of God, the hallowing of his name in the earth and love of his law. And it hinders the corruption of the world. Without salt, the world rots, as we said. That's why Christians... More and more Christians should be being encouraged to run for office. Not, not all of you, okay? I'm still trying to talk Ness into it, though. I've got his campaign slogan all worked out. Say yes to Ness. <laughs> it's perfect, right? But seriously, though, we're supposed to engage culture. We're supposed to engage culture. We're supposed to speak up. You know, have some fight in you. Standing for righteousness, y'all, has a purifying effect in the world. The world is infected. The disease is sin. We bring healing to a world infected by sin as we reflect Christ to the world. Now, how does salt lose its saltiness? Jesus says something there, doesn't he? He's hinting at this idea of salt losing saltiness. You know, there's only one way. By being corrupted by other things. That's how it loses its saltiness. But by, by not remaining different and distinct. See, salt is only useful if it's pure. It's, it loses its function when it becomes corrupted by its environment. The quality of salt only degrades when something else taints it, when it loses its purity. You know, salt itself, as we've said already, it's a preservative. But what preserves it? What preserves the preservative? Purity. It only ever loses its quality when other stuff blends in with it. That's how salt loses its taste, its preservative qualities, its ability to make good things grow and to prevent the growth of bad things. Christians only influence the world if they're different from it. They only influence the world if they're different from it. And as I thought about this week, I'm, what is it? What, what, 
what is it that's creeping in? What is it that's creeping in to the church that's, that's costing us purity and potency? And I'll tell you, y'all, in a term, one of the biggest things that's blending in now and, and having us lose our saltiness, our sting, collectively as, as a church in North America, is secular humanistic thinking. Big crazy words, right? If, if you're not familiar with that term, I suggest you get familiar. I say that, and some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that don't, I suggest you get familiar with secular humanistic thinking. It's not a boogeyman, y'all. It's not, it's not chicken little crying the sky is falling. It's not the boy who cried wolf, all right? There is such a thing as progressive Christianity today that people are defecting to because it plays nicer with the world. And because fewer people hate it, that must be more like what Jesus was. And it is not Christian. It is satanic. Satan always masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And then that same, the, the, the very next verse, when Paul's talking about that in 2 Corinthians, he goes on, he's talking about the false teachers, and they say they're, he, they're just like them. You know, that steer people away from the apostolic teaching, the word of God as it was given from God to his disciples. Here's why flirting with secular humanism is dangerous and a present threat to the saltiness of the church. It's because according to secular humanistic reasoning, we're all more enlightened now, right? We, we're all more enlightened now, so we can look at the Bible and see where that was, yeah, that was off base, right? We know better now. We've evolved in our thinking, so we know some of the stuff that took place in the disciples, they were just backwards and didn't really, didn't really know better, but we know better now. That is blasphemy, we know better than the men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down for us this God-breathed word? You start down that road, you will find it as a highway to hell, questioning God's word. You remember, the peril of man and all of creation began with questioning God's word. Did God really say did he really say if you ate the fruit of that tree, you would die? Now, I know I'm a pastor now, and I'm supposed to get all hot and bothered and bent out of shape about this stuff, but y'all don't do me like that. You should get hot and bothered too. Jesus didn't say preachers and pastors are the salt of the earth. He said you are. This godless culture of ours is literally fighting tooth and nail for the minds of your children because they're thinking about the future and what kind of people they want in it, and you are not it. And they will make it as easy and as convenient and as comfortable as possible for you to let them disciple your children so that when you're dead, your God and his influence in the world dies with you. They're thinking generationally. Are you? Are you thinking generationally? 
about what you want to grow and don't want to grow? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. You know, I've heard preachers and I've read commentators before that, that say something say something like, well, Jesus is teaching us here that he delights in using small and insignificant common things. And that's true, okay? He does do that. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, not many wise, not many noble, et cetera, et cetera, right? But that's really missing something here. All of that is true. But that's why context is important, y'all, Okay? Before you apply scripture to yourself, you have to understand how it applied to them in the moment, who it was originally addressed to. Salt's common now, sure. Wasn't then. Not to them. It was extremely valuable. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make here. You are the most precious commodity in all the earth. At that time, Jesus is teaching to his disciples, salt was literally one of the most precious commodities in the world. People used to get paid with it. It was, it was, a, it was a form of currency. Roman soldiers, as a matter of fact, were, were, were paid in salt. And that's where we get our saying, too, isn't it? You know, he's not worth his salt. He's not worth his wage. It's incredibly valuable. Salt was rare, and it was valuable. Sure, it's, it's you know, it's just stuff from the earth or whatever. It's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not jewelry and it's not a, a fancy toy. But it had a more meaningful impact for people than jewels or fancy toys. So much more valuable. You are different from the world and your difference makes a difference in the world. Let's move on to uh, the nature of light. We said earlier, light's essential quality is its essence. Light is its feature. So thinking again about the disciples, and as, as, as they're hearing this, how, how's this hit their ears? What are they thinking about? During that time, we said before, no plumbing, right? Well, no electricity either, okay? Sun goes down, lights out. That, that's it. It's dark, you know? And they, they didn't have, you know, uh, ton, tons of light pollution like we do now. Like, we live close enough to the city where you go outside and there's just kind of a glow, right? Reflections off of the sky because there's light other places. You know, I remember uh, when Amanda and I were first married on our honeymoon, we had this little cabin in, in uh, Gatlinburg that was supposed to be secluded. It was not secluded. We had somebody right next door to us. <laughs> and one night, the, the power went out. And boy, it was dark, you know, even with a nice kind of mountain, uh, starry sky, it was dark. And so we kind of ventured outside, and then the neighbors that were right there, they were outside too. And you couldn't see them, you know? You couldn't even make out an outline. You just knew it was over there because that's where the voice was coming from. It was dark, right? So when Jesus is talking about this, you know, they had to have been thinking, right? Well, if you're near a city... If you're near a city and there's, there's kind of a concentration, a denser uh, population in the area, and people all have lamps in their homes that are kind of shining through the windows or whatever in the cracks in the walls, what, you know, what have you, then it, there at least would be some kind of glow in the surrounding area. Now, if we took that city, if we set it on a hill, right, it, its light might be seen to, around the whole village. If we're light, what's light do? 
What's our function as light? It exposes darkness, doesn't it? It exposes darkness, but that's not all it does. It lights the way, right? People don't just need more light to expose darkness. They do. That's not all. You know, you think about John chapter 3, verse 19. He says, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, Jesus, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People don't just need more light. They need to love the light and hate the darkness. So part of the nature of light is it shows the way, and Christians are the only people on the planet who can do that. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What, what good works, right? That's a fair question. What, what good works? That opens up a whole other can of worms here. Uh, we, we need to have something to aim at, though, don't we? Do people see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in you? Do you speak of your spouse the way your unbelieving friends and coworkers do? Or can they tell there's something different about your marriage? Something maybe even to be envied that they recognize they don't have. Are your children respectful to you and others? That's in short supply today. People can tell there's something different about you and, and, and see your light by what you say no to, right? Where, where do you draw lines? Where are the boundaries? What are you willing to make sacrifices for and what are you not willing to sacrifice for? Where are you uncompromising? Some of those things silently shine light on people who are trapped in darkness and don't even know it's darkness. They haven't seen a better way, but they do in you. The true Christian, y'all, as we talk about light and the nature of light, the true Christian cannot be unseen. You cannot escape notice. A man or a woman truly living and functioning like a Christian will stand out. And you might say, well, I'm just, I'm not that kind of Christian. No, you're just not a Christian. The essential quality of light is light. It, it is or it isn't. If it's not light, it's what? Darkness. Now, that doesn't mean you need to run out of here today and go prove how Christian you are, okay? Don't be tempted to do that. It just means if you are something, you are that thing. And Christians are the light of the world because they reflect Jesus. It is their function. If it's not functioning, it's useless. It's not the thing. If it isn't light, it's darkness. Light makes darkness felt. It exposes darkness and it shows a better way. So, don't retreat from the world. Let your light so shine. Don't retreat from the world. I know it's crazy out there. Hiding your light is easy, but it's of no effect. What people see when they see you, the light of the world, 
is a different way, a better way. You know, they, they don't look at you and they, they, don't see, they shouldn't see a do-gooder, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being a do-gooder, okay? They should see a be-gooder, somebody who's just better at being. This is a culmination of the Beatitudes, remember, okay? Jesus has been talking about what you are, what you are. You are this, you are that. You are salt and light as he wraps up this portion. He's not telling them to be something they aren't. He's not telling y'all this morning, he's not telling y'all to be something you aren't. This is who you are if you are in Christ Jesus. This is what you were made to be. Be what God made you to be, salty and bright. Don't lose saltiness and don't hide light. Don't allow yourself to be corrupted by the world. And don't hide from the world. Live openly, godly lives. Raise your children differently. Raise them to be different. This is standard issue Christianity, right? I just want to point that out. This is standard issue Christianity. This is not the luxury model with all the bells and whistles, right? With the moon roofs and the sliding doors and all. This is standard, standard issue. Base model. But what we often do when we're presented with a standard is we lower the standard. We start dreaming of the, uh, the standard actually being sort of this ideal, the highest it can be, and we think of all these other things down here, right? That's called legalism. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. This is standard issue. You know, Jesus says in the next verse that we'll look at next week, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I have not lowered the bar. How do we stay salty? How do we stop the decay and be what we are? Stop letting the world in. You stop letting the world in. Reform the church. And when I say that, what I mean is back to the Bible, to the apostolic teaching delivered by God himself to the men he gave it to to reveal to us. Stop letting the world come in and and influence that. Reform the family. Stop letting the world in. Reform the government. Stop pretending God doesn't care about politics or that it's outside of his jurisdiction. Call on your leaders to repent. Remind them that the only authority they have, they have been granted from above. And not to serve their own selfish purposes, but the purposes of God who gave it to them. The hope of a society is an increase in the number of Christians who live like Christians. And y'all, how will there be any? How will will that happen if no one knows what one looks like, right? If no one knows what one looks like, because there's no difference between them and the world, right? Instead of being salt and light, they're, they're sugar and camouflage, How effective is that? Your difference from the world makes a difference in the world. It reminds the world there is a God above who reigns, who took on flesh and became a man so that he could make up for our lack and die for our lack. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let them taste and see that the Lord is good. Let them taste and see 
that the Lord is good. We're about to do some tasting and seeing right now. You want to know what grace looks like? Have you tasted it? Y'all, we're about to put the gospel in our mouths and bite down on it. That's how sure God wants you to be of his promises to you in Christ. That what's done is done. That atonement has been made for your sin and now you're invited to come to his table and join him and sup with the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you that in him we have newness of life and that by the power of the Holy Spirit you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That we would be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, encourage and strengthen us, embolden us that we might proclaim your excellence so that your name would be revered in all the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.